Trinity Baptist Church. Good morning. Once I was a person who only knew one thing about love, and what I thought I knew turned out to be the greatest lie ever. I learned at a very early age that by achieving exceptional success, I would be showered with love and approval. I never really understood that I was lovable just because I was me. I didn't know that I had to achieve anything amazing to prove that I, that I didn't have to achieve anything amazing to prove that I was worthy of love. Then Jesus found me and he pointed me to the cross, which grounded and filled me with this powerful truth. If I was the only person on the planet, he still would have hung on the cross to die for me. There is nothing I can ever do in my lifetime to prove that I'm lovable or worthy enough to deserve that. Today, I'm set free, and my reasons for achieving the extraordinary are to give God the glory for what he's done to show me how much he truly loves me by the sacrificial giving of his son so that he and I could be reconciled. My name is Lisa McIntyre, and I am new. Today's scripture reading is going to be from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verses 6 through 14. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I had asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here, I had learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God, with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakor, the son of Madaniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God. And do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. The word of the Lord. Well, this morning we wrap up this series called Extraordinary, where we have been learning from the book of Nehemiah what it, what it takes for us to be extraordinary or to step into the extraordinary life that God has for us. And... So we're going to look at the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah, if you want to turn there. And this is, I, I don't know a better way to end this study than this chapter, which is a good thing because this is the last chapter. Uh, it's, it's just a, a remarkable chapter that talks about, and I'll just tell you right up front, so, Amanda, if you have to leave, I'll give you the one bullet point. Um, there's just the chief thing, the chief takeaway of this text is you persevere in your passion. When God gives you a holy discontent, 
You stay at it. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 13 of Nehemiah. If you want to turn there, and if you're looking for it, it's right before the book of Esther. That helps, right? So here's a little uh, a recap of where we've, where we've been to get us to this point. Um, many years prior, and we don't know exactly how many, um, but a number of years prior to chapter 13, Nehemiah is in Persia. He's in the court of King Artaxerxes, and he gets some news which breaks his heart. He is um, overwhelmed because he hears that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down, and therefore God is in reproach. And so he has this passion. He has this holy discontent for the honor of God. That's, that's his thing. And so he goes, he gets permission from King Artaxerxes. He goes back to, to Jerusalem and he organizes and then, then oversees the rebuilding of the wall. But the rebuilding of the wall was never really Nehemiah's um, purpose. The rebuilding of the wall was a vehicle through which he would rebuild the people so that the people could bring honor to God by being a nation who, who um, treated God differently and treated each other differently and treated outsiders differently. He wanted to reestablish Israel as a nation so that they as a people would bring honor to God. And we saw that they did that in the face of opposition. They did it by coming together. Um, they, they, after they completed the wall, they had this marvelous time of, of worship and rededication. And we saw last week in chapter 12 that they, they had this um, spiritual renewal where they committed themselves to God and, and they had, you know, the choirs walking on the walls. And if you were here last night, I don't know if you caught it, but we started with part of the choir over here and part of the choir over here. Did you catch that? Nehemiah chapter 12. There was reason behind that because we wanted to feel that. And so all of this is going on, but at some point, at some point after Nehemiah 12 takes place, um, Nehemiah goes back to Persia. We, Lisa read it for us in chapter 13, verse 6. It says, in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Okay, so, so we know from chapter 1 that, that he got to Jerusalem in the 20th year. This is the 32nd year, so do the math. He's been in Jerusalem for 12 years, okay? But then he goes back to Persia, and he takes up his job in Artaxerxes' court, and he's there for some time. We don't know how long he's there, but given everything that transpires or that we see has transpired in Nehemiah chapter 13, he had to have been there for a number of years. So let's look at chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. This is what Nehemiah finds when he comes back. Verse 4, before this, 
Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Do you remember who Tobiah is? No, you're not tracking with Tobiah. Tobiah was the, the Ammonite. In, we saw him in chapter 2. We saw him again in chapter 6. He was the Ammonite who opposed the, the rebuilding of the wall. He was an enemy of Israel. But here, he's gotten in tight with Eliashib, who is, it just says here, the priest. But later we find out that Eliashib was the high priest. So evidently, Eliashib, for whatever reasons, political clout or material gain or whatever, he's, he's gone in with uh, Tobiah the Ammonite. Verse 5, look at what he does. He, Eliashib, had provided him, Tobiah, with a large room frequently used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. In other words, Elisha takes this this enemy, um, and and just so you know, Ammonites were um, ancient enemies of Israel, and we won't go into all the reasons now, but Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy, God commanded Israel not to allow an Ammonite into the temple, into the sanctuary. Okay? So God states this command. And here's Tobiah, and Eliashib has allowed this guy that God has commanded to not even go in, ever to go into the sanctuary. Eliashib has provided him a room. Not only did he provide him a room, but things were a little tight in that room, and so he moved all of the temple articles out so that Tobiah could have a little more space. Verse 6. But while all this was going on, I was in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes' king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, and again, we don't know how long, I asked his permission to come back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing to buy a room in the courts of the house of God. So when Nehemiah sees this, what does he do? Verse 8, I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms and then put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. You see what he does? He cleanses the temple. Remind you of anybody? Mm, Jesus. Right? John chapter 2, right at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus goes in and sees some things going on in the house of God that aren't supposed to be going on in the house of God. And because Jesus has a holy discontent for the honor of God, what does Jesus do? He cleanses the temple. That's what Nehemiah does. In verse 10, we find that not only has the the priesthood been compromised, 
But like a cancer, this compromise has infected the Levites. Verse 10, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. Do you see the Levites compromise in there? Do you see it? What is it? Yeah, they went back to their own fields. Who's the only tribe that wasn't given land? Levi. Why? Because God said, you're going to serve the temple. And so he scattered them across the 48 cities in the land of Canaan, and the Levites were not supposed to have land. But here it says they went back where? To their own fields. You see, these guys had compromised and said, hey, people aren't giving giving the temple, they're not supporting the work of the Levites anymore, so let's go back and and we just need to take care of ourselves. So we're going to go get our own stuff. They went back to their own fields. They'd compromise just like Eliashib. So what does Nehemiah do? Verse 11. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? In other words, what are you doing tending your fields, which you're not supposed to have anyway, and you're neglecting the house of God? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. And then the next couple of verses tell us that he appointed some guys who were trustworthy who would make sure that everyone was, was doing their job to give to the temple so that the priests could do, the, so that the Levites could do their job and they wouldn't have to go other way. So that they could keep teaching the scriptures so that another generation wouldn't grow up um, in the dark the same the way this one had. And then in verse 14, he asked God to remember him for his service. Just put that in the back of your head. In verse 15, it just goes from bad to worse. It didn't just affect the priests and the Levites, but it got into the business community. It says, In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of other loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre, these are Gentiles, who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. You see what's happening? They, the priest had, had compromised with regard to giving sacrifices. The Levites had compromised with regard to their job of teaching the scriptures. And now the businessmen are compromising because they're just saying, who cares about the Sabbath? We're going to make a few extra bucks. So what does Nehemiah do? Does Nehemiah just throw up his hands and say, I'm done? You know, I had this holy discontent. I had this passion that God had put on my heart. 
and this vision for reestablishing his people. And for a season, it looked like, in fact, for like 12 years, it looked like we were really on track. But I go away for a few years, and, and I come back, and here's where we are. And since nobody else seems to care, I'm done. Is that what you would do? Might be what I would do. I mean, I, I don't know. But what I do know is that it's not what Nehemiah did. Verse 17, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you're doing? desecrating the Sabbath. Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all of this calamity on us and on this city? He he says, look, the reason we're in this mess is because we've done this before. God doesn't change and his word doesn't change. And if we don't stay true to the truth, we're going to go back into the same place we were before. And I think it's important to note that this is not a minister calling the people to this. This is a layman calling the leaders to this. In verses 19 to 21, it tells us essentially that Nehemiah locked the gates on the Sabbath and says, look, nobody's coming in, nobody's going out. And you who are trying to profane the name of God by doing business on the Sabbath, if you keep trying, I'm going to have to hurt you. I mean, you can read it. That's basically what he says. I'm going to come and I'm going to hurt you. I mean, that's how passionate he is about this. Do you think this is a popular action to shut things down on the Sabbath? Absolutely not. So at the end of verse 22, just like verse 14, Nehemiah prays and he says, Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Keep that in the back of your mind. Can it get worse? Unfortunately, it does. It started with the high priest. It went through the Levites to the businessmen and the nobles, and now in verse 23, it affects the families. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, those are Philistines, Ammon, and Moab. They knew this was wrong. They knew this went against God's decrees, and they did it anyway. Verse 24, half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Do you see how, what a huge impact this has on on their culture? Now their kids can't even speak Hebrew. A generation is rising up that cannot say the name Yahweh. That's what happens with compromise. In verse 23, you have the men. In verse 17, you have the the nobles and the businessmen. In verse 15, the Levites in 10 and the high priest in 5. Who's left? The kids. 
The kids are all that's left. And in the book of Judges, it says that a generation arose which did not know God nor the work he had done. And friends, that's exactly what's happening here. And if I can put in a commercial, what you saw at the top of the service with what we're doing with our kids and God Quest and what we're doing in Bright Beginnings and what Francisco's doing in, with, with the junior high and high school students, that is so important. We need to teach our kids Hebrew. Um, you had to think about that for, for a minute. No, we got to teach them the ways of the Lord so that a generation's going to be able to grow up and still say the name Jesus. Right? So in verse 25, Nehemiah gives us a textbook, a textbook example of what a good pastoral response should be. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I love that. And I think I love that because I feel that sometimes. You know how some pastors stand at the back and shake your hand as you're going out and stuff? I'm going to go back there, and if you're in compromise, I'm just going to pull out your hair. Mm. And by the way, when it says he called down curses, it doesn't mean that he's dropping F-bombs on them. It means that he is invoking the displeasure of God, saying, may God deal with you according to your disobedience. It's essentially what he did in chapter 4 with Sanballat and Tobiah. So he goes on, verse 25. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. (coughs) Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel, but even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you, are, that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Do you see what he's doing? He's calling them back to what they had committed to before he left. It's what we looked at in Nehemiah chapter 12, or the first three verses of chapter 13. Here, Nehemiah is calling him back, not just to a biblical mandate, but he's showing them a historical example of why this is not just wrong, but it's unwise. He, he says, look at Solomon. Solomon was one of the, the greatest men in the world. He was one of the most powerful men, one of the wealthiest men in the world in his day. And he allowed this to come into his life, and it destroyed him. And it destroyed us as a nation. Do you think that you are so much better than Solomon, so much wiser than Solomon, so much 
stronger than Solomon, that you'll be able to withstand the temptation and the compromise and not be destroyed? He says, Solomon couldn't do it, and neither can you. Don't you love this guy? In a day of compromise and ambivalence and ambiguity with priests who will compromise and Levites who will compromise and nobles and businessmen and and parents who will compromise, here is a wine taster turned general contractor who is standing up to face the whole nation And he says, this is unfaithfulness, and this is sin. It was sin then, it's sin now, and it'll be sin tomorrow, and we can't do this. Friends, that's perseverance for the honor of God. That's staying true to that holy discontent. Do we need to hear this today? Do we have a generation today who actually thinks that what was sin a hundred years ago is not sin now? That somehow God has changed, that somehow morals have, have changed because some psychology prof differs from Deuteronomy? Friends, we need some Nehemiahs who will stand and deliver the goods. That needs to be you. That needs to be me. Verse 28. One of the sons of Joada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. Remember Sanballat? Sanballat was uh, another principal opponent to the rebuilding effort. And here we have the grandson of the high priest marrying Sanballat's daughter. How could this be, right? Well, I'll tell you how it can be. Dads, fathers, if you live in compromise, how can you expect your children to not live in compromise? How can you say, don't don't do what I do, but do what I say? It doesn't work. You have to live true in order for your kids to live true. Verse 29, remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office in the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. Do you see the sad irony of verse 30? Who were supposed to be the leaders of the nation? The Levites and the priests. And yet, what we have here is a layman who is purifying the priests and the Levites, not the other way around. Verse 31, I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. And he concludes 
And by the way, chronologically, these are the last words of the Old Testament. Nehemiah is is chronologically the last book of the Old Testament. And so these are the last words of the Old Testament before um, the, the Gospels, before Jesus would come on the scene. Nehemiah says, remember me with favor, oh my God. Keep that in the back of your head. Nehemiah goes faithful to the end. He perseveres to the end. Friends, this is a great text for so many reasons that we don't have time to, to talk about them all. But, but as we kind of tie a big bow on this idea of extraordinary, I want to make three closing remarks from this chapter that I think, that I think really just um, help pull it all together. First, if you're going to be extraordinary, you cannot allow compromise in your life. If you're going to be extraordinary, you cannot allow compromise in your life. Sin starts small, but it gets big. Um, Jesus said that a little little leaven impacts the whole um, loaf, right? Or all the dough. Meaning it, it starts small, but it takes over. Here, it starts with one small act of the high priest, but then it grows through the Levites, to the businessmen, to the families, until it even gets to the kids. And that's why we must, (coughs) it's why we have to fight against sin in our lives. We are, we're all sinners, okay? Can we just all admit that? We're all sinners, we're all going to fail, yes, but you don't, sit in that failure, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a sinner, I'm just going to live here. No, you fight against it. You fight against it. You receive forgiveness and you fight against it. You don't let it keep growing. If you've got a, an anger problem, if you don't fight against it, it will overcome you. If you've got a greed problem, if you don't fight it, it will consume you. If you've got a pride issue, if you don't fight it, it will rule you. Gentlemen, if you're messing around with pornography and you just kind of accept it as, as, you know, part of who you are, if you don't fight it, it will eat you alive. We've got to fight against sin. Because if we just let it kind of get a foothold in us it will spread and it will destroy us and friends if you let sin run rampant in your life if you let compromise be a part of your life you will not experience the extraordinary life that God has for you I'm not saying you're not forgiven. I'm not saying that God's grace and mercy aren't on you. I'm just saying you're not going to experience the abundant life that Jesus came to give you. That's first. 
Second, extraordinary things can only be accomplished by men and women who persevere in their conviction. (coughs) Extraordinary things don't happen if you come back and you just go, oh well, nobody else is buying in, I guess I'm out of here. Extraordinary things only happen when you when you grab on to that holy discontent, when you grab on to that passion, when you grab on to that thing that God has called you to, and you say, I'm staying on this. Nehemiah, he, he had this holy discontent for the honor of God, and he works on it for 12 years, and he sees this great, you know, progress and then he goes away for a few and he comes back and he goes what happened and instead of just throwing up his hands he says no 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 no. we're going back to where we were friends extraordinary things happen when you stay committed to your conviction when you persevere finally And we'll wrap our series with this. Extraordinary people may not see the fruit of their labor in their day. Not once in this book, not once in this book do you see kudos going to Nehemiah. Not one time does somebody come along and pat him on the back and say, dude, you're doing a great job. But he remained faithful. And the reason I, I told you to keep those you know, one-sentence prayers in the back of your head is because Nehemiah's audience was not Israel. Nehemiah's audience was God. And Nehemiah kept saying, Lord, remember this. I don't care what they think. I don't care what happens with them. Remember this. Remember this. Lord, I'm doing this for you. Remember this. You see, he was playing to the audience of one. Paul had the same mentality. He told the Corinthians, Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's heart. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Paul says, don't worry about what everybody else says. Worry about what God says. He would say to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. Do you think Paul knew that we would be sitting here today because of him? In large part. (laughs) Right? I mean, the Gentile church exists because of the Apostle Paul. Did he know that was what was taking place? Did he see that? No. But he said, Lord, remember me. I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for you. Friends, extraordinary people could care less whether they get 
a pat on the back. Extraordinary people only care that at the end of the day, their heavenly Father says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what extraordinary people do. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray, I pray that we would be, uh, first, first, Lord, I pray that we would truly desire the extraordinary. I pray that you would put it in our hearts to, to want to be extraordinary people, to want to live the extraordinary life that you've called us to. And Lord, that we would do those things, as we've learned over the last 10 weeks, that we would do those things that we need to do so that we can step into the life that you came to give us. And now, Lord, as we come to the table, help us not to forget what you did to enable that life for us. Lord, I pray that we would never forget. We would never forget. And as we sang last night, we will remember the works of your hands. And the most glorious work of your hand was when you hung on the cross so that we might have life. For that we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.